the words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in the fifth chapter, verses 37 and 38. Verses 37 and 38 in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent him, ye believe not. Now these are tremendous statements. Let me read them again to you. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath born witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent him ye believe not. In other words, in looking at these verses, we are considering and continuing our consideration of this tremendous and most vital statement which our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ made concerning himself to these Jews whom he encountered in Jerusalem mainly and chiefly as the result of his healing that impotent diseased men at the pool of Bethesda. You remember how as the result of that act of our Lord, because he had healed that men on the Sabbath day, these Jews began to argue with him and to criticize him. They suggested that he was a blasphemer. They suggested that he was breaking the law of God by doing such a thing on a Sunday, and then that he was even making things worse by claiming that he was equal with God. And our Lord, you remember, takes up the challenge and he proceeds to address them. And in his address, he makes it perfectly plain and clear and explicit that he is indeed claiming to be the Son of God. One with the Father in mind, in will, one with the Father in everything. Far from Denying it or disputing it, he asserts it and goes on repeating it. And then you remember having done that, he turns to them and he says, in effect, well, I'm thus bearing witness of myself. And I know that you therefore won't accept my witness. You say that everything must be confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And that you won't listen to me simply because I'm saying this kind of thing myself. But he says, I'm not left to that. I have evidence. I have testimony. I have supporting evidence. And he says again, I plead with you to listen to it. And he tells them quite plainly that he is doing this, that he is addressing them and that he is pleading with them in order that they might be saved. It is his concern for their souls that makes him bothered with them at all and thus continue with them and put the truth to them in different forms 
all in an endeavor to convince them in order that their souls might be saved. And so he says, listen to the supporting evidence. First, it was that of John the Baptist. He reminds them that they'd sent to John and that he had borne witness unto the truth. And that how for a while they'd listened to him, but then had turned their backs upon him. There was one bit of evidence, a striking evidence, because John had been admired by these Jews. They'd regarded him as a prophet. But still, on this vital matter, they don't accept his witness. And then he says, I have a witness which is greater than that of John. The works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, they bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. Now, we were looking at that last Sunday night. It is mainly the evidence of the miracles. The miracle he just worked. Why was it that they were blind to the facts that were staring them in the face? Here he is, he is healed in a moment, a man who had been thus crippled for 38 years, without sending him into the water or anything else, he speaks the word. And the man rises up and walks carrying his bed. But they won't look at the facts. There were other miracles. He says, if you don't believe me, well then believe for the work's sake the tremendous importance of the evidence of his miracles his mighty deeds, not only his miracles, but the result of his preaching, and indeed the works that include even his death and his resurrection. But now he goes still further. He says it doesn't even stop at that. The Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. This is something that's already been done. God himself, he says, has testified to the fact that I am the one whom I claim to be. And therefore, in these two verses, he is holding them face to face with the testimony, the evidence, the witness of God himself. Well, now I think you'll all agree that this matter, therefore, that we are looking at together this evening is most serious and most solemn. We cannot possibly... No group of people anywhere in the world can at this moment be doing anything that is more serious and more important than that which is engaging us at this present time. What is the point that our Lord is making? Well, the point that he's making, in a sense, is a point that he's already made. He's repeating a point that is recorded in the 23rd verse of this chapter, where he says that, all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. That's the point that he's making. His argument is that a true belief in God the Father must of necessity lead to a belief in him also. That you cannot honor the Father unless you honor the Son. Now that was, of course, the terrible thing about the position of these Jews to whom he was speaking. It was in the name of God that they objected to him. It was as servants of God, as those who claimed to be unusually zealous worshippers of God, that they regarded him as a blasphemer and they rejected him. You see, they were putting up against one another God and God's Son. 
Now that's the point that he makes here when he puts it like this. He says, the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. And then he puts it again. You have not his word abiding in you for whom he hath sent him. You believe not. Now this is the subject therefore that arises for our consideration this evening. The Jews here, I say, were putting up as opposites into antithesis two things which our Lord says must inevitably and of necessity go together. His argument is you cannot be true believers in God and yet reject me because the God whom you claim to believe in is the very one who hath sent me and has given me all these things to do which I am doing. Now then, let us take this up in its modern form. Why am I calling attention to these two verses? Someone may say, what has the position of those Jews nearly 2,000 years ago got to do with me? Well, the answer to that is, of course, that they're just representative of uh, the attitude of many people at the present time. I'm considering the case of those who say, oh yes, I believe in God. But I can't believe that gospel as you preach it. I believe in God, says the men, and I pray to God, and I'm trying to live a life that is pleasing in God's sight. But at the same time as they say that, they will not accept this gospel. They say that Jesus of Nazareth was only a man. They don't believe he's the eternal and only begotten Son of God. They don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in the incarnation. They don't believe these reports of his works, his miracles. And when they talk about his death on the cross, they see nothing but the death of a pacifist. Or they see the death of someone who was too pure and too good for this world and who was misunderstood as many a good man has been misunderstood and was put to death by cruel and by selfish people. Just a kind of accident, the greatest tragedy that the world has ever known. They don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God. They don't believe that he proved that by his miracles and by his life. They don't believe that he went deliberately to that cross in order to bear the sins of men and to take upon himself the punishment of those sins because it is the only way whereby God can reconcile the world unto himself. They reject the atonement. They don't believe in his resurrection in the body. All this they deny. Now that is the kind of person with whom we are dealing. People who say that they believe in God but rarely reject Christianity. In other words, people, if you like, while claiming to believe in God, have never quite seen why the Son of God should have come into this world. Who see no need of him at all. They believe they can go to God as they are. They never see any real meaning and absolute necessity in the cross, the death on Calvary's hill. They never see and reject the suggestion that they were in such a lost condition that it needed the Son of God to leave the courts of heaven and come down into this world and go through that miracle of the incarnation and the virgin birth and die and rise again in order to save. That is the position. And I think you will agree that there are large numbers of people who are in that position. 
You go to them and put the question. I've often put it in this form before. Go to them and have a discussion about these things. And then you ask this question. Say to them, What if you had to die tonight? As you may well have to do. What would be your position? What are you relying on? And this is what they say. Well, they say, I, I, I believe in God. Very well, you say, you believe in God. Well, uh, what if you have to die tonight and to stand before God? What's your position? Well, they say, I believe that God is love. Yes, we say in reply, you believe that God is love. But what about your sins? Well, they say, I believe that because God is love, he'll forgive me my sins if I ask him to do so. You say, is that uh, all you believe? Yes, they say, that's my position. I've done as much good as I can, but I know that I've uh, failed to do things, and I've done things that I shouldn't do, and I am relying upon my prayers to God when I ask him to forgive me and to have mercy upon me. I believe he'll listen, and because he's love, he'll do so. And we say, is that all you've got to say? They say, yes, I'm relying upon that. You notice the significant thing? They've never mentioned the name of Jesus Christ. They speak exactly as if he'd never been in this world. He doesn't come in at all. They do it all directly with God. Jesus Christ not mentioned. Neither his birth, his life, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. He's unnecessary. Now that is to deny him. That is not to honor him. And you see what our Lord is arguing here is this, that if you do not honor him, you cannot honor God. Now these Jews couldn't see that, and so many people today can't see that. These Jews thought they were all right with God, and that they were criticizing him. He's proving to them that they're all wrong with God. For you cannot be right with God and wrong with him. And that is what makes this matter so urgent this evening. Is Jesus Christ absolutely essential to you, my friend? Are you relying only and utterly upon him and what he did when he was in this world and what he's doing now? Is Jesus Christ absolutely vital and essential to your whole relationship to God? Can you say that your life centers in him, that he is your life? He is your salvation. He is your everything. Are you honoring the Son of God? For his own argument is that if you don't honor him, you cannot honor God. And you are deluding yourself. Now this is obviously, as I have said, a desperately serious matter. To leave him on one side is the most terrible thing that can ever be done. Why is it that people do then? Well now, here in these two verses, our Lord answers that very question. And you notice that he gives three reasons for this position. These Jews, he said, were in that position of imagining that they were all right with God while they reject him. He tells them that they're in that position for three reasons. And the first is their ignorance and their arrogance. The two things are here, ignorance and arrogance. And of course the arrogance is the result of the ignorance, as it always is.
Is there anything more appalling than the position of these people who here were standing in front of the Son of God, the incarnation of God's eternal love, and were arguing with him about God and ridiculing what he was saying about God and putting up against what he said, what they said. That's their condition. That's their position. And isn't it the exact position of everybody who isn't a Christian? Isn't that the trouble with anybody who believes that he can believe in God without going through Jesus Christ and him crucified? Well, let's look at it. How ready are men and women to talk about these things and to give their opinion? Everybody's always ready to enter into religious argument and to talk about God. We've all done it. We've expressed our opinions and we've done so with glibness and with confidence, with assurance and with arrogance. We say what I say is this and then we begin to speak about God and we say what God is like and what God does and what God cannot do. We say we cannot believe in a God who does this and that. That's the kind of language, isn't it? In other words, we all claim that we are in a position to talk about God. And that we don't see any need of this atonement and this salvation and this being saved and this being born again of the blood of Christ. We have no use for that, we say. No, no, we say that God, as a God of love, will receive us and if we say we are sorry, he'll forgive us and all is well and we'll go to heaven at the end. And so on. Isn't that the position? That's how we talk. That's how we argue. And we don't hesitate to argue. And somebody quotes the Bible. Ah, we say that's all right. And we explain it as being some primitive view of God in the Old Testament, a kind of tribal God. And then we come to the New Testament. Well, we say, after all, it's 2,000 years ago, you know. And people in those times were very ignorant and illiterate. They believed in miracles and things like that. And this Jesus was only a child of his age, after all. And he adopted the ideas and the thought forms of his own contemporaries. And on and on we go. We put it all on one side. And thus we speak about God and our relationship to God. But here is the question. On what is all this talk based? What's the authority for all we say so confidently? As with hands in our pocket we say what we think about God and what God is like. What's the authority for it? What is the foundation on which you're erecting your building? What are the facts on which it is all resting? What I ask is the sanction for it all. Or let me put it still more plainly and bluntly. If I'm speaking at this moment to someone who's in this position, let me ask you the simple question. What do you really know about God? Well, this is what our Lord says about such people. You have neither heard his voice, nor seen his shape. By which he means this. You know nothing at all about him. Nothing whatsoever. It's already been stated in this gospel which we are reading, which we are considering together. 
It's there in the first chapter, verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. Yet in our folly and ignorance and arrogance we talk as if we knew all about him. No man hath seen God at any time. But listen to a wise man saying it centuries before that was said. Listen to the wise men in the book of Ecclesiastes, probably King Solomon in all his great wisdom. Listen to him putting it like this in the fifth chapter, second verse. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou art upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. He wasn't much of a man when he wrote. He tried wisdom, he tried folly, he tried pleasure. But his wisdom at any rate taught him this much. I'd better be careful what I say about God. What do I know about God? Though I'm a great king here in Jerusalem, I'm only a man upon earth after all. And God is in heaven. God is in heaven. And I, thou art upon earth, let thy words be few. Oh, yes, there's another statement of it in the Old Testament. There are indeed many of them. I just pick out this one. And it happened twice, once to Moses and once to Joshua. You remember that climactic experience in the life of Moses when looking after the sheep? One afternoon he'd taken them round the backside of that mountain and suddenly is arrested by a bush burning, burning bush. And he says, what is this interesting phenomenon? Like a typical modern man, he goes and says, I'm going to turn aside and I'm going to look at this remarkable sight. I'm going to investigate it. Religion. Good thing to have a discussion about. Let me see now then. And he's on the point of beginning his analysis. And suddenly the voice comes out of the bush saying, Stand back. Take off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the ground whereon thou standest is holy ground. And the same thing was said to Joshua. In other words, you see, God says, no, no, realize that it is I who am here. I am that I am. Stand back. Stop. Take off your shoes. I am to be approached with reverence and with godly fear. I'm not a subject for investigation. I'm not someone that you can come and analyze and talk about and express your opinion. Stand back. Humble thyself. Well, there it is, I say, our Lord puts it here, you have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. Uh, what you know about God, you who claim that you are believers in God, but are nevertheless rejecting me, and see no need of me and no necessity of me. What you know about God? What's your evidence? What are your facts? What, is, uh, what, your, what are your authorities? Where are your sanctions? What is it? And the answer is it's nothing but their own imagining. 
They know nothing about God at all, and all their opinions have no reality whatsoever apart from their own little minds and their own statements, and that goes, let me remind you, for the greatest men and the greatest thinkers in the world who are not Christians at this present moment. The real value you attach to all they write and say is just that they've said it. They know nothing about God. These great philosophers that say they don't believe in him. They've never heard his voice. They've never seen his shape. It's because they're ignorant that they're so arrogant. There is no truth in their position at all. Their whole approach is wrong. It makes it impossible for them ever to know. Indeed, says our Lord here, the primary trouble with the whole of mankind is it's ignorance of God. What then are we to do, says someone? Well, let me tell you. It's all been stated very perfectly for us by a man whose name was Job. You remember the story of Job, don't you? Poor Job, how he had to suffer. And his foolish friends came, Job's comforters. What they said was all wrong. Yes, but they so irritated and annoyed Job, they made him say many wrong things also. And there he is, feeling that he's got a grievance and a grudge and that God isn't dealing quite fairly with him and isn't being fair to him. He said, if only I could address him, but he's so great and he won't listen to me. If only there was a daysman, if only I'd be allowed to state my case. Job had been speaking unadvisedly with his lips. And then, after a while, God just gave him a glimpse of himself. And do you remember what Job said? It's in the last Chapter of the book of Job. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me which I knew not. I've been talking like a fool, said Job. I've been expressing my little opinions about things that I don't understand. I've been venturing to criticize thee, O God, and to say that thou art not fair. I've spoken without knowing things too wonderful for me, things I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare unto thee. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. But now mine eyes see thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the appropriate condition, my dear friend. Let me ask you therefore once more this evening. If you think you know about these things, what do you really know about God? You've never heard his voice, you've never seen his shape. What do you really know on what is your opinion based? I beseech you, in the name of this self-same God, listen to Job. And admit and confess that you've been talking about things that you don't know and you don't understand. Things too wonderful for you about a God who is infinitely removed from you. Acknowledge it, I say, and confess it. And with Job, put your hand upon your mouth. And humble yourself in his presence. It is only humility and a childlikeness that are appropriate when we begin to think about God and to talk about God. 
and endeavour to come into the presence of God. The trouble with these people, says our Lord, was primarily their ignorance and their arrogance. Tell me, my dear friend, what do you know about the greatness of God and the majesty of God and the glory of God and the holiness of God and the dominion of God? Do you know that he is the one who said, let there be light and there was light, who made everything out of nothing, whose eyes are upon the end of the earth, to whom the very nations are but as the small dust of the balance and like a drop in the bucket? The everlasting God. Have you ever conceived of him or thought of him? Believe me, if you and I had some knowledge of God, we'd fall to the ground. We'd put our hands upon our mouths and we'd wait in fear and trembling. We'd be ready to listen to him. You've never heard his voice. You've never seen his shape. It is ignorance that leads to arrogance. But you see, there's a second thing he says about them, which is, in a sense, even worse, and it follows from the first. Not only are they speaking without any knowledge of facts, they even refuse to accept the facts. They won't believe the testimony when it's given them. They've never heard the voice of God. They've never seen his shape. And they won't listen to one who has. He's speaking to them. But they won't listen to him. They reject him. They reject his testimony as they reject every other testimony. And this is what makes mankind finally without any excuse at all. They, by searching, can never find out God. Doesn't matter how big their brains are. When you put them before God, they're just nothing. They're just not there. Can a man by searching find out God? Of course he can't. That's why no man has ever seen him or ever will. No, no, man by his own endeavor and effort can never get there. But God in his infinite love has been pleased to reveal himself. He hath given a witness. He's borne a testimony. He's given a manifestation. We are not left to ourselves. The whole business of this book is to tell us about God's self-disclosure. The Father, he says, who hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Now he's done this first of all in a very general way by giving evidence and revelation concerning himself. What is our Lord referring to here? Well, he's obviously referring first and foremost to the Old Testament. And there he is referring not only to the words of the Old Testament. That is important and God willing I hope to come on to it next Sunday night. Because our Lord himself goes on to it in detail. But here I think this evening he's dealing with something else. He is dealing with certain disclosures and manifestations that God has given of himself. I believe when he talked about hearing his voice and seeing his shape, he was referring to particular things, not to the word of the Old Testament in general. What am I talking about? Well, I'm thinking about things like this. I'm only picking out certain ones at random. I'm thinking of that experience that happened to Jacob one night at a place called Peniel. Jacob had reached the critical point of his life. He'd had to escape from his father-in-law's country, and here he is with his wives and children and possessions, and he knows his brother Esau's coming to meet him. 
And he's going to meet him tomorrow and he wonders what's going to happen. Jacob was left alone. He'd sent the wives and the children and the animals and the goods and everything over the river and he remained on the other side by himself. Jacob was left alone. And a man began to struggle with him. And the struggle went on, you remember, through the night. And Jacob was conscious of someone above men. And he holds on to him and the light begins to dawn. And the man says, I must go now, says Jacob, I will not let thee go. Unless thou bless me and tell me who thou art. What was happening there? Oh, it was one of God's self-disclosures of himself to men. It was what you, if you may like the technical term, it was one of these theophanies, one of these appearances of God in the form of an angel. Uh, God comes to this man Jacob because he's so vital in the whole revelation of God through the children of Israel and eventually in Christ that he must know. So he comes to him and Jacob from that moment he knew the living God. He struggled with him. He, as it were, came before him and he felt his presence and his power and he became Israel because he has prevailed with God. But Jacob's knowledge of God from that point, you see, wasn't merely based on tradition and hearsay and what he'd been taught. It was immediate. It was direct. He had dealt with God directly. It was one of these occasions when a man, as it were, hears the voice of God and sees in this strange way something of the form of God. Jacob at Peniel. All the same thing happened to Moses and to some of his elders when God called them up onto a mount. There he gave them the glimpse and underneath him was this sea like of glass and like a rainbow, God manifesting himself. And you remember later in his life, Moses, conscious of the weight of responsibility upon him, said, I will not go up with these people unless you show yourself to me. And God says to him, no man can really see me and go on living but I will give you a manifestation. And he took Moses and he put him in the cleft of a rock. And as we are told, put his hand upon him. And God passed by. He didn't see his face. He saw his back parts, we are told. And Moses was ready to go on after that. He had seen something of the form of God. He had heard the voice of God. That's why I listen to Moses. That's why I accept his writings. He comes and he speaks as a man who knows God. He's not just giving his opinions. It happened, you remember, to that man called Gideon in the book of Judges. It happened to the father and mother of Samson. It happened to Isaiah when he was commissioned to give his great message to the children of Israel. There he saw something and the smoke descended and the posts of the door began to shake. And he was filled with a sense of the presence of God. And he said, Woe is unto me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and dwell among a people of unclean lips. What is all this, my friend? Well, these are just illustrations 
of God revealing and manifesting himself, giving some indication of his voice and of his form, of his shape, the everlasting God condescending to give a revelation that men may know. But here our Lord is reminding these men not only of that kind of thing. He is also obviously saying something like this. He says, you know, you are arguing with me and you're claiming that you know as much about God as I do. And you say that I'm sinning against God by healing a man on the Sabbath day. You're setting yourselves up as equal authorities with me about God. Listen, he says, you have never his voice. Seen his shape. But I have. I've come from him. But he said to him, beginning at verse 11, I say unto thee, We speak that which we know. And testify that which we have seen. And you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Nicodemus, he says, you're arguing with me, but what you really know, You've got your traditions, you've got your teaching, all right as far as it goes. But listen to me, Nicodemus. I am an eyewitness. I have come out of God. I've come from God. I've come from heaven to earth. You can't rise from earth to heaven. Listen to me. I'm speaking what I know. That's why these Jews should have listened to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come out of God. He is the eternal Son of God who has come from the bosom of the Father. And here he is amongst men and he doesn't speak from hearsay. He's an eyewitness. He knows God. He was face to face with God, says John in his prologue. He was with God, face to face with God. He is God. But wait a minute. It doesn't stop even there. You, says our Lord to these men, have never heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. But there are those who have. I believe at this point he was saying in effect to them this also. He was saying, I've just been talking about John the Baptist. The man you were ready to listen to for a while, but then whom you rejected. Why didn't you listen to him? Because amongst other things, this is what he said to you. He told you that he was there baptizing me at the river of Jordan. And that as I came up out of the water, he saw the Holy Spirit descending upon me in the form, in the shape of a dove. He told you that. And he went further and he told you that he heard a voice from heaven saying, This 
is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John told you that. He heard the voice. The voice of God. He saw the Holy Spirit in a shape, in a form, descending upon me like a dove. Why didn't you listen to him? That's the evidence. The voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Don't you remember he tells them? That John told you, you'll find it all in the first chapter of this Gospel of John. John says, you know, the one who sent me said unto me, upon the one whom you see the Holy Ghost descending in the form of a dove, that is the Messiah. And I saw, says John, and I testify that this is the Son of God. He'd heard the voice, he'd seen the shape. But again, it happened, you remember, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter and James and John are taken by our Lord up onto the top of a high mountain, and there he was transfigured before them. And he began to shine with a radiance and a glory such as they'd never seen before. More bright than the brightest shining of the sun. More than the brightest shining of Zeta or any of your atoms and your hydrogen bombs. A glory, a glory of God. And a cloud overshadowed them. And after the departure of Moses and Elias, they heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my dearly beloved only begotten son. Hear him. And they never forgot it. I can prove that to you. Listen to the Apostle Peter at the end of his life. He's an old man. And he's writing his last letter to some of these disciples, to some of these followers. Do you remember what he says to them? Let me read his words to you. Moreover, he says, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. He says, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as the Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. He says, I'm an old man, I know I'm going to die very soon, but I will endeavor uh, that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. Uh, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I haven't been telling you fairy tales, says Peter. I haven't been entertaining you with stories. The gospel that I've preached is about this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth. Why, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. I'm going to die, said Peter. And clever men will arise after I and the other apostles have been gone and dead. And they'll say to you, oh, this gospel that they preached, it was a lot of nonsense, fairy tales, make-believe. Look here, says Peter, I'm telling you before I go. What I've told you is not a matter of cunningly devised fables. I am telling you something I've seen, I've heard, I beheld his glory, his majesty. And I was there on the mountain, this voice from heaven, we heard. I wouldn't have dared preach to you as I've done, says Peter, 
If I wasn't certain, if I didn't know, it wasn't theory, it wasn't something I'd excogitated out of my own brain. It wasn't my fevered imagination. The others were with me. The three of us were there. We saw, we heard the voice coming out of the excellent glory. That's the testimony which you and I are to believe, my friends. This voice of God that has spoken in the Old Testament and in the New and always pointing to this Son, to this one who was to come, he says later on, you remember, to his own disciples, they were a bit troubled when he said that he was going to die and leave them. And one of them, you remember, called Philip said, Master, show us the Father and it suffices us. Though you're going to leave us, if you could only show us the Father before you go. You see, they'd been resting on him and relying upon him. He spoke with such confidence. They knew that he was speaking about what he knew. But he's telling them that he's going to leave them. And they say, are you going to leave us alone? Their hearts were troubled. He says, let not your heart be troubled. But they say, how can we be but troubled if you're going to leave us? Ah, said Philip, show us the Father. And we shall be satisfied. And you remember what he said to Philip? He said, have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He who hath seen me, hath seen the Father. Look at me, he said. And you see the shape of God. I am a form of God. I am the Son. Look at me. Look at me. He who sees me sees the Father. If you want to hear his voice and see his shape, he argued, look at me. Listen to me. The trouble with these Jews was, I say, that not only did they know nothing, they were not only ignorant, they wouldn't listen to the evidence. They wouldn't accept the testimony. Why? The last reason he gives is this. I'm only going to mention it. It was because they were spiritually dead. And that is always the final explanation. Now he puts that, you remember, in these words. He says to these Jews, you have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him you believe not. He said, if you'd got his word abiding in you, you'd listen to me. But because you haven't got his word abiding in you, you don't listen to me. That just means this. It is the word of God that makes us spiritually alive. As we all are by nature, we are spiritually dead. You hath he quickened, says Paul, to the Ephesians who were dead in trespasses and sins. To be carnally minded is death, says he again to the Romans. The trouble with men and women born into this world as the result of the fall is that we are all born spiritually dead. And it's because we are spiritually dead we don't respond to Christ. The word of God is not within us as a living power. If it were, it would respond to him and we'd believe him. I quoted it this morning, I quote it tonight. 
The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he, because they are spiritually discerned. Says Christ, if only my word, the word of God were in you, you'd respond to me. What does he mean? He means this. If only the word of God were abiding in them, they'd immediately respond to him for this reason. What does the word of God talk about? Well, it talks about God. It tells us something about God, about his glory, his majesty, his holiness, and his power. It tells us also about men. It tells us that we're not just animals, but that we've got souls, and that they've been put there by God, and that they're a part of the image of God, and that God holds us responsible for the soul. It tells us about the law of God and our own sinfulness and that we are under the wrath of God and under the condemnation of God. The word of God tells us all that. And here we are if we receive it. We realize we're in jeopardy. We're in a dangerous position. We've got to die and stand before this judge eternal. And the law condemns us. How can we face him? Oh, but the law, the word of God goes on to tell us about the promise. God had given a word in the Old Testament, starting in the Garden of Eden, about the seed of the woman that should bruise the serpent's head. He said, yes, you've fallen and you're in a state of chaos, but I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to visit you. I'll send a deliverer, the seed of the woman, the promise of deliverance and of salvation, the promise of Christ. It's there, as I hope to show you next Sunday, running right through the Old Testament. And if they'd received this word, and if it were abiding in them, they'd be looking forward to him. They'd be waiting for his coming. And then when he came, they'd have recognized him, and they would have believed on him. These Jews didn't do so. Because the word of God was not abiding in them. Ah, but you remember the reading at the beginning, don't you? You remember an old man called Simeon? A Jew like thee. Ah, but here's the difference. The word of God was in him. He was a man, we are told, who was looking for the consolation of Israel. He had believed the word of God and it was in his soul. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he couldn't save himself. He tried, he'd failed. He couldn't keep the law. He'd broken it. And he was under condemnation. All the patriarchs he knew had failed before him. He's down, but there's a promise. The Messiah, the Deliverer, is coming. He was waiting because the word was in him and in his heart abiding. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And you remember what happened? Mary and Joseph take this little infant in their arms, the infant Jesus, into the temple to fulfill the law. And the old man tottering on the brink of the grave. The moment he saw him, he says, let me take hold of him. Let me have him and took him in his arms. And turned to God and said, Now, let us thou thy servant depart in peace. For mine eyes have seen the salvation of God. He saw it in the babe. These people don't see it in the man. They don't see it in the one who's just worked the miracle. The one who turned the water into wine. The one who's speaking to them. They don't see it. Here's a man who sees it in the infant. In utter helplessness, mine eye have seen 
Because the word of God abided in him. He knew him at once and believed him and worshipped him and blessed Mary. And then you remember the old woman called Anna, the prophetess. This old, old person. She hears that something's happening. She came in and what did she do? Exactly the same thing. She bore the same testimony to him. And it was all because the word of God was abiding in her heart. Oh, the reason why men and women do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as the Savior of their souls is I say that they've never got the word of God. If they but had some conception of the God whom they've got to meet and before whom they've got to stand. If they but saw themselves as they really are. If they but realized the value of the soul and that a man can give nothing in exchange for his soul. If this word had but gripped them and had come to them and had revealed to them their emptiness, their helplessness, their lost condition. Instead of talking glibly about God and never mentioning the name of Christ. They'd be looking for him. They'd be searching him. And as he's preached to him, to them, and as he's offered to them as their savior, and as they're told that he's the son of God who went to Calvary to die for their sins and to deliver them from condemnation, they'd say, thank God. It's the thing I've been waiting for. It's the only way. If you don't believe in him and see the absolute need, of his coming into this world to die for you. The real explanation of it is that you're spiritually dead. Oh, I humbly beseech you, listen to this word. With Peter, I would say that I am not preaching unto you cunningly devised fables. Jesus of Nazareth is the center of history. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. You'll have to see him one day. And if you go out of this world without casting yourself at his feet in worship and adoration and trusting only to him to save you, and to reconcile you to God. It will be the most terrible sight you've ever had. You will then see him in his glory. And realize the terrible tragic folly. Of ever having rejected him. And dismissed him. In your ignorance and your arrogance. Face God. Face yourself. And fly to Jesus Christ. And though you've rejected him until this night. He'll receive you. 
and enfold you in his blessed arms and tell you that he died for you, that your sins are forgiven, that you're reconciled to God. Amen.